Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James chapter 1, verse 27. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. All Scripture is capable of being twisted and misused. We see it even in St. Paul's own day, right? In the New Testament of people misusing uh, the true word. Um, this verse in particular, I think, has a capacity and, and has, in fact, been misused, which is a misuse I hope to remedy uh, with God's help by proper use this morning. So the first thing to note, um, which I think is often... Um, Uh, slipped over when this verse is uh, expounded, is that the two actions that are given, visiting orphans and widows and staying unstained, these are not definitions of religious observance. They are supportive secondary actions that complement religious observance. So do you see the difference? The Christian religion isn't summarized by visiting orphans and widows and staying unstained. If if that was Christianity, we would just be... uh, moralistic do-gooder religion, right? Which is not the sum of Christianity. We would still be in our sins. Now religion, um, although sometimes in the scriptures the word is used negatively, here it's used positively. It's the outward um, expression, the outward acts that uh, accompany faith, the the acts of devotion. In James's day and in ours, the range of this word would mean showing up to church, participating in the sacraments, saying prayers and psalms, retreating to, in your house to private prayer, spending time with the scriptures, fasting, tithing, right? all the outward acts of piety as we know them. And again, these themselves are not the center of the Christian life. Right? This is the religion. These are the acts of devotion that point towards the center of the Christian life, which is faith in the risen Jesus. So you see, so there's the Christian life seated in Christ, in the heart, through faith. And then there's these re- religious, the, the religious life, the life of outward observance, which are disciplines and habits that keep, God willing, pointing us back to the center, back to Christ and faith in him. And then what James is saying is there should be two things beyond that as well. Actually, in the verses here, he says three guarding your tongue, but then in this verse, two, two things to do, to visit orphan and widow, um, and to remain unstained from the world. So you're with me so far that it's not sort of like, oh, this is just a little package of Christianity. No, no, we're talking sort of two layers out from just faith in Christ in the heart. Are you with me so far? Okay. Um, and these two works that are to be the result of having received the, the word of the gospel. As St. James is going to go on to say, and this comes up in our lectionary, I think, next week, works flow from faith. Right? They don't stand in place of faith. They don't justify in themselves. They are the natural outflowing of faith if faith is real. So I want to look at these two things, the two buttresses of true religion that James names, that make religion, the acts of devotion, commendable to God as an offering, And so the first is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. One of the ways I've heard this verse misused is I think some try to spin this very verse as if it was 
a carte blanche support of a social justice program in society. I think to interpret it this way is actually to really miss the payload of the text, where the commanding verb is visit, visit, visit orphans and widows, go to see them, you yourself, go to see them and be with them long enough so that their burdens weigh in your heart, that maybe you might, the smell of their home might rub off on your clothes, that mothball smell. It doesn't say, be certain to alleviate their poverty with some institution. Right? You could actually do that and still fail to honor this command of actually visiting them yourself. The Lord actually wants us to be in face-to-face contact, to join in holy fellowship so that we can carry each other's burdens with holy compassion. In visiting, certainly there'll be opportunities to give from your own financial needs, from your own financial finances, to the needs of the day. Sure. But that's a gift to us to keep, you know, mammon worship at bay and to bind us together in his body. So the application of this verse, of course, requires a little bit of cultural translation. In the first century, widows and and orphans were unavoidable. They were the frequent um, beggars in the lanes that would make up a small town, and they'd be known to everybody. They're a little harder to run into these days, right, in the society of the car, the way our cities are laid out. But I bet that most of you know someone, maybe just one person, right, who fits the essential description. If you sort of boil down what is an orphan and a widow in that sort of space in society, to have not enough money to make ends meet, vulnerable to exploitation, constrained in such a way that they cannot provide for themselves, pitiful, lonely, and the word in the scripture, afflicted. Does anybody come to mind? If you know even one person, then read God's word through St. James and visit that person. I would encourage you to try and do it this week while the scripture is fresh on the mind. And one of the things that has been a hang-up for me in my sort of trying to hear this verse and others like it is I hear the word visit and what I sort of receive is and solve all their problems. And that's actually not what the scripture is saying either. Right? It's not for you to solve someone else's all of their problems. It's to visit. And maybe you can help solve one particular problem, but not all of their problems. The key is to visit. A personal visit, according to the, this passage in James, is worth far more in the eyes of the Lord than any political or economic opinion about what this person does or doesn't need. We bandy about opinions so much and don't do a lot of visiting. If you right now don't know anyone who matches that description of someone um, socially vulnerable, economically unstable, pray that the Lord would bring your path to cross such a one. I, I actually, it's a seasonal prayer of mine, Lord, keep me in contact, keep me near someone who fits this description. And the Lord very often brings someone along. And the reason he does that is because when God's people care for God's poor, the kingdom of God gets to expand in every direction because then Christians are acting like God, right? befriending the needy. That's sort of a, a sort of material microcosm of what God has done cosmically to us, right? We who are sort of infinitely spiritually needy, while we were yet his enemies, while we were still sinners, 
God befriended us. Far more than befriended, that's too weak a verb, right? He, he joined us in the person of his son. But it was also an act of friendship and visiting. Okay, so that's widows and orphans. The second thing that the Bible says renders our religion pure and undefiled before God the Father is keeping oneself unstained from the world. This commandment actually already has two gospel precepts baked into it before we even sort of unpack its meaning. The only way, think about this, the only, how, how is it that we could say, keep yourselves unstained as if we were unstained? Who of us is actually unstained by the world? Apart from Christ, none of us. And so what sounds like a moralism is not. St. James, who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, he knew the prophet Isaiah to be true in his own life, that though his sins were as scarlet, they've been washed white as snow, for his case, by the blood of his half-brother. I say half because, of course, Jesus, his father, was God and no man. Because we've been cleansed by the mercy of Jesus, we can count ourselves among the unstained, even though by our sins we're stained. I want to, just to talk about unstained, I want to just read these two sentences from St. Basil, the 4th century church father, which have always stuck with me thinking about sin as staining. He's talking about the resurrection on the last day. They who have done evil, and by that he means those who have not repented of their evil, shall arise in the resurrection to reproach and shame, seeing in themselves the foulness and the marks of their evil deeds, and perhaps more fearful than the darkness and the eternal fire of hell is that shame which sinners will have as their companion in eternity, having ever before their eyes the traces of that sin in the flesh as a dye which cannot be washed out, abiding forever in the memory of their souls. I read that eight years ago and it sent chills down my spine. I've never forgotten it. That if it wasn't for Christ's mercy, we would actually be stained with our sins. As it happens, as it is, because of His grace, we have been washed. So that's the first truth in this charge, to keep oneself unstained. Um, The second is that there's a clear, actually, uh, implication that we are to be in the world, right? Living out of that passage, to be in the world but not of the world. There would be no risk of being stained by the world if you sort of retreated into some compound where you never interacted with anybody in the world, any heathen. Perhaps it would seem like that would be a solution to remaining unstained, but it would be a misstep. We're to be in the world but not stained by the world. I know this sounds, that when I say this, I sound sort of like a, <coughs> um, like a fundamentalist from the 1980s. But the, the biggest portal of dye that stains is the TV screen. The things that come through that screen so readily stain our consciences with all manner of worldliness. The um, one thing that the, I believe the Lord has sort of led me to, to come across is before watching anything now, on IMDb there's a parent guide. Right? It's meant to like screen stuff for your kids, but you can use it to screen stuff for your own soul. 
and it lists in graphic description the things that are in that movie. And I read it, and I'm like, do I want to see that? No, I do not. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, been a great help. That's one area where the Lord has led me into some doing a bit better than I once did, but one where I still fail, but I want to speak to you out of my own failure in terms of remaining unstained from the world is curiosity. And I don't mean the good kind of curiosity that's the sort of inquiry into the world as God made it, you know, like Newton looking into the speed of gravity to try and figure out God's laws. That's a fine curiosity. I mean that curiosity when you hear a word used by someone that by context you can tell is something dark, but you don't know what it is, so you Google, what is that thing? I want to know. That sort of dark, carnal curiosity. It's so hard to resist, but the thing that's discovered so often stains the soul. I testify from personal testimony that God's mercy is double. Not only has he cleansed us from our sins when we come to faith in Christ, but even when we sort of fall, when we don't, when we fail this commandment and we don't stay unstained from the world, there's still mercy. Right? There's still cleansing to be had. And it's not instant. I mean, it's instant before God, but in terms of like the felt effects, like that stain of those things discovered on the TV screen or in, from curiosity, carnal curiosity, God will wash those away with his own purity little by little. And he'll guide us more and more into his own devotion, his perfect devotion to the Father by his grace. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen.